at verse 13, it says, O Lord, I know, excuse me, there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. And in the book of Jeremiah, it is said, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. Moreover, it is said, for the steps of a righteous man, righteous person, are ordained of the Lord. Ordained. Counsel. What is counsel? Counsel is slightly different from wisdom, but the difference is an important one. Wisdom is what God shows you, so that you have the mind of the Lord. Counsel is what you speak out of wisdom. That's how you tell others. That's what you tell others. The counsel of the ungodly and the counsel of the godly are very different. The counsel of the ungodly is based in the knowledge of good and evil. And in that sense, the counsel of the ungodly is linear. It's logical. It's reasonable. We tend to think that the counsel of the ungodly is irrational and bounces off the wall. No, the counsel of the ungodly is just limited in the scope of the counsel. For example, the ungodly does not have discernment. They're not able to discern, A, the times that you're in, which is critical to the counsel that you ought to walk in. Linear counsel is that which looks at yesterday, considers today as an overlay upon yesterday, and projects to tomorrow. Now, if these are not different times, that is, if a different time has not come, then that counsel will hold up until there is a season of change. Now God controls the seasons of change. God controls the different ebbs and flows of human time. One of the most important aspects of godly counsel is the ability to discern the times. Because if the times are different, you see, if the times have changed and you don't know what the change is and you don't know how to respond to that, then the whole process of overlaying today upon yesterday and projecting to tomorrow will lead you wrong. Do you see? For example, the word says, now, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, suddenly from heaven there came a sound like as of a rushing mighty wind. And from that moment on, 
everything changed from what had been before. Prior to that, shepherds were watching in the fields, watching their flocks. And suddenly, from heaven, there was an angelic chorus announcing the greatest tidings of all, announcing the gospel, peace on earth, God's goodwill toward men. And from that moment, things radically changed. Counsel that is rooted in the linear cannot discern the signs of the times. And that's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you can say tomorrow, because the sky is red, you can say tomorrow the weather will be like this. But you can't discern the signs of the times. And, and in respect to that, he said, O, Jeru- o Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent unto you, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not. And I say to you, you will never behold your houses left unto you desolate, and you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why? Because you could not discern the day of your visitation. You see? This matter of the timing of the Lord is critical to the understanding of godly counsel. The world can see that maybe a thing is going to happen. But absent the timing of the Lord... As one of the elements of counsel, absent the understanding of the timing of the Lord, what counsel we give will seem right to us, but the ends thereof will be the ways of death. And and one is cursed who walks in the counsel of the ungodly. With that in mind then, let's consider timing. And the, the word time, or time, the concept of time in the scriptures. There are two concepts to the word, or to the to the two ideas associated with the concept of timing in the scriptures. One is the term chronos, c h r o n o s, chronos. Chronos has to do with chronology, chronology, the sequence of events. You know, we, 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 there's a type of watch that is called a chronograph. Just from the word, chronos or chronology. That means that there will come a progression of time, and in that progression of time, there are moments when God will do a thing. Alright, now, let me, let me develop this a little bit further. As you know, in the matter of timing, There are two realms. There's the realm of human time, and there's the realm of the eternal, which is not human time. Now, here is the interplay between the realm of human time and the eternal. Two thousand years ago, John, the the Apostle John, wrote about about the great white throne of God and the judgment 
that is associated with the, with the great white throne 2,000 years ago. But to the best of your knowledge, has that event occurred yet? <laughs> no, it hasn't, because this isn't heaven. <laughs> if that had happened, we didn't make the cut. <laughs> because this isn't heaven. <laughs> I got good news and bad news. <laughs> all right? Now, John said that he saw all the nations assembled before the throne of God for judgment. Now, normally we think of judgment as being passing, you know, sentence, everybody being sent here or there. Judgment may be that God has judged you righteous in the presence of all. Yeah. So in that sense, judgment for the righteous is not a bad thing. Judgment of the righteous is a very good thing. All right? Now, John saw all the nations 2,000 years ago. He was on the island of Patmos writing this thing. He saw, he said, before him were assembled all the nations. Now, since this event has not yet occurred, but John saw all the nations in that event, John saw you and me before the throne 2,000 years before we were born. That's the fact. If we're, we're living, so we're part of the nations that will stand before the throne. Right? That event has not yet occurred, but John saw it 2,000 years ago before we were born. Unless you're very old and are keeping it a pretty good secret. Right? So John saw you as, as among the nations 2,000 years ago before you were born. How is that possible? It's possible because there's a realm called time and there's a realm called the eternal. The things that are meant to come into time in the chronology of God. In other words, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, now every year the day of Pentecost came on that, more or less on that day. So it wasn't a surprise that the day of Pentecost fully came. But on a particular Pentecost, God had something in store for the world. Alright? Now, the other concept of time is the word kairos. Kairos. K-A-I-R-O-S. First was chronos, the second is kairos. Kairos means once the season has come, then in an instant, God does something that God has never done before. Kairos, quite literally then, is the moment of God within the sequence of Kronos. So, according to Acts 2, now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place. That's not strange. But suddenly, from heaven, there came the sound like as of a rushing mighty wind. That's Kairos. Suddenly God intervenes in the process of human chronology. Here is, here is the value of what I'm leading up to. We who are believers will know 
that we are in the season of God, in the in the chronos of God. Because all of everything that God has said points to it. But our problem is commonly, what do we do now that we're in the season? It's time to change. What do we do? What do we do? Well, we make the mistake when we're in the season of change and where it gets difficult for us is we know that it's the season, but we move ahead of the kairos of God. Do you see what I'm saying? We, we can know God's told us, he's shown us, we've, we've come up upon this thing, we're in the season now where we can expect to see God move. But because we don't wait for the kairos of God, for the moment when God does it, then we'll step ahead of the moment of God. And and then's where we find the gap between where we land and where we wanted to land. You see what I'm saying? So once you know that the, the chronos of God has come, set your face toward the change that God has told you. Set your face toward it. And then wait to see what signs he gives you that indicate that the favor of the Lord is upon you. So now you can take the, you can take the steps. Is this, is this one of the most difficult things that, one of the most difficult aspects of our decision making, therefore the matter of counsel, is this. This is the essence. This is the apex of it. We know we're in the moment of, we know we're in the season and we will we'll typically move just ahead of God because we're confident that it is the season. All that means is that we're in the chronos of God waiting for the kairos of God when God will show us, when it strikes and ignites. And the difference is the difference between getting full value for the thing. You know, have you ever seen this situation happen? God told you to, to sell everything and move to someplace, and you know God told you that, but you, 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 either you don't have peace about taking the final step, or you don't have, or, or you're not completely at peace taking the steps that you're taking, one or the other, because you know something is missing about this. You go back and you review all the records, and you know God told you this. I mean, he's shown you what to do. He's, he's given you favor. He's, he's arranged everything. And you know, God is with me in this thing. But just to, to step across the threshold and do the thing, you know something is not quite right. But what we do is we mix reason, the counsel of the ungodly, with the counsel of God. And we say, since God told me, to do this, then I'm free to go ahead and do it. And it's that gap that requires you to leap ahead or leap farther than you're comfortable with. What I have found is when God tells me that I'm in a different season, He's just informing me that change has come. Now, He then will show me what the change is. And then he appoints the specific steps 
that make the change. Give you, I'll give you an example from our, from our lives. That sort of brings this together. And it's something that you know very well. And I think what God wants to do is refine the counsel you give and refine the counsel you walk in so there's no loss to you and you can get the maximum value or benefit from the counsel of the Lord. This is infinitely to be preferred over hit or miss and trying to go back to God and say, but you told me, (laughs) you told me that this was the way it was going to be and I acted on the basis of what you told me. There's the little matter of, because for, for the majority of the believers, we won't simply pick up and do something without some indication that God's told us. That's the chronos of God. Right. God's told us something and we know we're in the season. But what God is saying, when you, that's one of the crosshairs. The other crosshair, when you put it on it, is when the kairos of God comes. When you know God has gone before you. When he's gone before you, you can't miss. It's why our decisions need to be refined all the more. And why the Holy Spirit has given us the spirit of counsel. Okay? I'm convinced that we're going to find these messages and these understandings to be of of value beyond our estimation. Both to ourselves and to others. The in Four years ago, Lucy and I knew that God had told us it was time to move from where we were. And all the events pointed to the season. To the season. And so, we, Lucy asked if it was possible for her to start looking for a house. And I said yes. But we proceeded to look for houses. And we looked at two dozen. She says we only looked at eight. (laughs) Well, things began to to show us that it wasn't quite, the decisions weren't the crosshairs lining up. We made an offer on one house that had been on the market for quite some time. But somebody else had made the offer just ahead of us. Ours was contingent upon theirs being turned down or their financing or something, not working. And they'd had this thing trailing along and dragging along. The moment we made the offer behind the one that was made, they accepted the offer before us. And we knew, now, that wasn't the right house. But after looking at two dozen, maybe eight houses, (laughs) we came to the conclusion that there was just nothing out there that fit what we needed. Because our view of uh, of a house was, what do we do with a house? What do we need a house to do? Just like clothing, you know, what what do you need clothing to do for you? You know, buying a vehicle, what do you need for the vehicle to do for you? It's not, you know, we, we, hopefully we're well past the place where we 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 don't define ourselves any longer by what size of house, what kind of clothes, what. You know, we don't define that. Those things, they're all just things that serve us. 
and I'll go into a little bit more of the details of what we looked at. I traveled a lot, so I needed to be able to have some sense that the area was secure for Lucy. Because we'd begun to get, strangely enough, we'd begun to attract some very strange people writing to us. There's even one woman that wrote me a letter uh, offering to walk out of the meeting with me. <laughs> because she knew that uh, I loved her and not my wife. I didn't even know the woman. <laughs> Charlie gets all my mail. So, <laughs> so he had read it and, and looked at me like, what's going on here? And I said, well, your guess is as good as mine. And thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I knew we, I knew we had, you know, we were attracting some, <laughs> we were attracting attention we didn't want. And, and then, you know, there were several who would write me letters, um, just calling me every kind of idiot or <laughs> whatever. So, you know, just a house where anybody could drive up, you know, from off, from any street was not, I didn't feel peace about leaving Lucy. In, in those kinds of circumstances. So we wanted a place where at least you had to go through the motion of going through a gate <laughs> to get to <laughs> follow anybody in. But <laughs> but anyway, this, that was one of the criteria. The second was we were beginning to have visitors from pretty much all over. And um, I was I knew the time had come to stop putting the kids out of their rooms. To, to receive a guest, so we needed a place that you know where it was was contained and all. The other thing is that our house had become increasingly the place where people would uh, get married, you know, the backyard. So we needed a backyard that would allow us to do that and uh, and have you know fifty people who would come to a wedding and and have have it be fine regardless of the weather. And the other thing was, and probably the most important thing from Lucy's standpoint, was whenever we had, uh, whenever we, I met with anyone to give counsel, it needed to be completely private. What we used to do was Lucy would plan to go run errands or visit somebody when I was visiting with somebody at home because our house was not conducive to my receiving somebody to have counsel. So if if perchance it was counsel that required a whole day, it was frustrating to her. It wasn't really her house. So we needed a place completely away. I mean, we needed a, a room, an office, that was completely separate for uh, to, to be, so that we could go in, close the door, and the rest of the house remained unaffected by my head. These were the things from over the years of of using a home, we knew we needed a home to be. And then God added some things that I didn't think of, like a studio, place for a studio, in order to be able to tape at home. Anyway, well, we looked around, and there was just nothing in our price range out there. So we thought we'd go ahead and build. But it bothered me. To think about building a house. Because I didn't have a year off. I didn't have a year that I could take off. And I knew that it was, it would be unrighteous to leave Lucy 
with all the responsibilities of building a home. But we talked about maybe God would send us one of the brethren to to build it for us. Anyway, Lucy and I went ahead, Lucy actually went ahead, and drew, drew up plans for building a house. And then, you know, looking for land, it was just, it was getting to be ugly. And something I wasn't looking forward to. Well, one day a friend told us to go and visit another friend's place because she thought we were building, uh, since we were going to build this house, that this friend had done some nice things and there'd be some architectural things we could use in it. So we went over to look at this house. And this house was exactly the floor plan that Lucy had drawn up. We have it in the in our file cabinet. It's exactly the floor plan. So Lucy asked me, she said, what do you think? <laughs> and I said, well, even I could take a hint. <laughs> and we offered them the exact amount that was their lowest threshold that they would accept. And they were motivated, and the deal was closed in, what, 30 days? Maybe not much more than that. The point being, when, when we were trying to do it in our strength, we knew we had to, we knew it was time to do this. So we began to take the matter up and to look for homes and to, and alternatively, once we found there were none, to look to build. But the further we got into the process, the less peace we had. And when we actually were not expecting it, the kairos of God, the moment of God, he led us right to the thing. Now, that taught me that you could begin by knowing that if God has stirred you up to move and to move in a certain direction, that you could actually wait on the Lord to show you. Waiting on the Lord, however, has a bad name among believers. Because we consider waiting on the Lord the same as doing nothing. And you know we can't not do anything. We've got to be doing something. Well, the thing that we can be, do, be doing is what the last things God showed us to do. And not be occupied with making work or trying to make the thing come about that God has shown us. I believe that a lot of the diseases that relate to stress and worry come upon us because we do not understand, to use my analogy, the crosshairs of God's Kairos and Kronos. The season of God and the moment of God. When the two converge, you've got a bullseye. When the two converge, you got the thing. Now, this is not to say to anybody, we've all been in sin and we've all missed God and God has honored us with the limitations of what we knew. 
And he's more commonly rescued us. Because of our immaturity and our failure to understand. But always there is a more excellent way. There is a more excellent way. And when God brings us to that place of greater excellence. Then he intends to give us the benefit of being brought to that place. So. In the matter of counsel then. One of the critical understandings is the timing of the Lord and the two elements of the timing of the Lord. When you know that you are in the season of God, one of the things that will contribute to that is the circumstances that suddenly you're faced with and information that you have, knowledge and understanding that you have, and so on. You will know that you're in the, in the season. When God's going to do something. Now when you know that you're in the season. In which God is going to do something. Don't keep looking back. To the past season. Okay. But. Before you jump. To where you're going to go. Wait for the signs. That God has gone. Ahead of you. And now it's time. For you to do the next thing. That's the Kairos of God. There are many other things that feed into this. And uh, you know, time will not permit me to, to do a very detailed presentation of this. But th there are other things that, that step into this. The way we normally make decisions. The way we normally make decisions is that we... We get, get a, a sheet of yellow paper, we draw a line across the top and a line down the middle. And we write pros on one side and con on the other side. We list all the, all the things that are in favor of one decision or the decision that we're looking at. And we list all the things that are against it. At that point, all we're doing is apportioning our loss. all we're doing. We're taking count of our loss. Seeing if we can afford the downside. But, when you make decisions based in what God is saying, there is never a concept of loss. You may have to leave some things behind. And go on into a new thing. But loss is overcome by the expectation and the anticipation of what God has in store for you when you get there. You see? And the next stage in your life is like a new suit of clothes that are better suited for you in that next stage than the last suit of clothes you were wearing. One of the hardest things for humans... And I think you don't figure it out until you get much older. Is that there are very different stages in a, a human's existence. But we love to hold on to the last stages. And the reason is 
we don't know what the new stage is going to be. And yet it, it assaults us. The fullness of life comes not when you have perfectly managed the one stage that you like. Do not, for heaven's sake, try to continue to be a teenager <laughs> when, when you are older. Lucy and I were talking this morning about this woman we both know, uh, whom we had met, whom I, I met just recently, and she was, you know, she was anorexic then, trying, you know, when I, we knew her when I was in college, she knew her since they were, she, since they were young girls. And this woman is doing her best, I mean, everything imaginable to hold on to being in her late teenage years. And it's absurd. And it really looks bad on her. It really does. She's not able to let go of that because of this petrifying fear of what lies ahead. You know, one of the great truths about life is change will come to you. And our decision making in order to take full advantage of the next phase is to see when God turns the, turns the corner, if you like. When we have made that next stage turn. When you see that, you can move in the peace of God. And, it, you know, if you're married, your husband, you and your, you and your husband, you and your wife can make that turn together. If not, if you don't see that timing, children will get in between you. you know, the job will get in between you. The business will get in between you. Finances will get in between you. You know, and, and all this stuff about middle age crazy and, 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 and all of that. That begins to assume levels of importance that only are important because you don't see that you have come to a different stage. You know? I mean, I'm not, here I'm not talking about staying fit and, you know, and, and that. It is, it is more accepting the fact that this next stage is a new stage that is probably more valuable to you than the stage you just left. I mean, who would want to be a teenager again? You know? <laughs> it comes with all, you know, what we want is to, what we sometimes want is to go back there with what we know now. Well, you, <laughs> you would be just the most maladjusted teenager. I mean, who would you hang out with? <laughs> Knowing what you know now about life, which of these teenagers would you hang out with? You know, and, and talk and, and use the expressions that they do. And it's like I went la 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 la, la and then she went la la la, la, la and I just go <laughs> and whatever. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't fit. But the thing is, if you went back to that place, you neither have the benefit of your peers here or there. <laughs> You're stuck. <laughs> I said to you would be lonely. You'd be the lonely teenager, and I guarantee you there is no worse state than a teenager alone, one who doesn't fit in. 
Well, we just need to see that there are different days, different, different seasons of our lives. Part of the problem is we have not reconciled ourselves to the reality of living and dying. And that's the second of the two great elements of counsel that I want to touch. The first is time, and the second is death. The word says that humans have been, have been held in bondage all of their lives to the fear of death. And that Jesus has overcome death. The great temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden was based on this lie. You shall not surely die. I mean, you see people who everybody else knows they're dying, but they will hold on. They'll hold on with their eyeballs if they have to. When you do that, your counsel is not right or valuable. Or when your mind is addicted to living forever, then you can be deceived by counsel that would suggest that you can live forever. What is true is that you do live forever, but not in the flesh. For it is appointed unto men once to die, and after death the judgment. But as long as you think you're not going to die, as long as you think there's something you could do to avoid that inevitability, it will corrupt your counsel. And you will not see the moments of God, you will not value the different stages, and you will miss your destiny. You will miss living your destiny. And, and, and that really is to not live at all. To miss living the purpose for which you were put here. When you understand that you can never die. You can never die. Who you are. Who you are. That God made you to be. Can never die. Your spirit. Can never die. Because the life of your spirit. Is the spirit of God. There is another realm, the eternal realm, which is closer to us than a breath. It's not far away. It's not distant. It's not in the ozone. It's not out of... It's not those kinds of things. It's just another dimension away. And there was a part of us that was constructed to live in this dimension and to go through the changes that will ultimately lead to that part dying. But Jesus said it this way. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, although he were dead, yet shall he live. Because apart from Christ, we live while we, we're dead while we're alive. 
But whoever lives in me and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked Martha, he said, believest thou this? Do you believe this? Yesterday I pointed out to you that the spirit of a person is not young, it's not old, it's not demented. Your spirit is ageless. It's an eternal existence in time. So we house our spirits in these bodies which by definition decay. And so Paul said it this way in in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for though outwardly we we are wasting away. So it's appointed unto us to die. Though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. In other words, there's the renewing of our spirits, the renewing of the mind toward God. And if you'll see that, then you'll understand that the older you get, yes, the greater your physical strength will ebb from you, but the more pronounced your spirit will become. And that's the greater thing. When you're young, you depend upon physical strength. When you're older, it is understood that your physical strength will not be the same. It'll be less. But your spirit's strength will soar. These are the two great aspects to the spirit of counsel. Time and the fear of death. And when you understand that there's Kairos and Kronos, you can always get the timing right. When you get the timing right, God has gone just a step before you. And in in, in the fear of death, once you understand that it is appointed unto you to die, the way you are to die and the manner in which you are to die, God knows those things. So you can't die until he appoints it. So you're free to live in the appointment of God. You're free to live in that. One of, I want to give just one other example, and then I'll leave this. And it's an example that relates to the Old Testament with Saul and Samuel. Samuel was both a priest and a prophet. And he told Saul to meet him in a certain place and that they would offer the evening sacrifice. Saul got there and he had the sacrifice and he had a group of men with him. But Saul was not of the priestly tribe. Saul was not of Levi, so he couldn't offer the sacrifice. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited. And the sun was beginning to sink in the east. And the people with Saul said to him, 
you need to go ahead and offer the sacrifice. Because the sun is sinking. And Saul, listening to the people, did something that was an abomination to God. God had set it up where only the Levites could offer sacrifices. Saul was not qualified. As Saul was offering the sacrifice, Samuel showed up before the going down of the sun. Just like he said. And on that basis, Samuel informed Saul that he and his lineage had been rejected and cut off from the kingship over Israel. You may think that you've come to the very end of that time when God showed you the thing ought to be done. But for heaven's sake, wait and don't take the matter up into your hands until God takes the step in front of you. I have found I have found this to be true in my life. I won't give you an example. I'll just give you the summary. I have found this to be true. That when you pursue God, he will show you where he's going to take you. For example, I know that my next steps will be, will be involved a great deal in writing. God's already given me six of the major books that I'm to write. And I've talked to some of you. Three will be on what it is not. And three will be on what it is. It's not enough to say what it is not. He's even shown me the sequence. Which book should come before which. But. If I were to stop everything I'm doing now. And go and start writing. There'll be this huge gap. Because things would not be set in order. So what the Lord's showing me is to begin to train men and and bring them into their places and release the purposes of God to them and help them and bless them and make, make the work for them to be as easy as possible. Serve them with the understanding that he has given me and put them in place and then the next season will come for me. And even the ideas that he's given me, the, the understandings he's given me, will mature during that time. So I expect, as the Lord has shown me before, that I will take this step, and I may not see the next step, but when, I, when it's time for me to reach over the void, it'll be just, just one more step. It won't be a leap. When you're walking with the Lord, it's one step and then another step. Even when the change is 180 degrees out. So look for the signs of your season. And once you know you're in your season, keep on with the things you're doing and then start adding to it the new things you should be doing. Don't look back. Once you're in your new season, don't look back. That's one of the reasons you ought to know you're in a new season. Don't look back to the past. Don't try to make the past work. When you're in your new season, you're in your new season. Okay? But after that, when you've come to this new season, then let the Lord ordain the steps for the next season. And then after, when, 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 when the next season is upon you, fully live as if that next season is coming. So you're not looking back, 
Spirit. And when you're looking into this new season, you'll begin to see all the ways that God fills it out for you and makes it just right. Then there will come that kairos of God, which is when you actually step from the past into the future, or step from the present into the future. Very fine, very fine work. But there's no loss associated with that. And no, you're not apportioning your loss. There are no pros and cons there. It really is just how God gives you the benefit of your bargain. Alright? So, those two are the major elements that go into the spirit of counsel. The timing of the Lord and being excused from the fear of death. Knowing then that there are new seasons and you are meant to come into those seasons. The third aspect of it, of counsel, I'll just mention to you and I'll leave it because I've done much teaching on this before and you can, you can reference it through things I've already done. The third aspect of counsel is your destiny. What it is that God put you here to be and to become. You know you have a destiny before you were in your mother's womb. So don't encourage someone to be something that he was. God didn't make him to be. God didn't make her to be. I explained how I had to repent to my daughter. You know, for trying to make her into being a lawyer. When she was put here to be a musician. To make music. So that's the third aspect. Your destiny. To recap those three. These are the three elements of godly counsel. The first is the timing of the Lord with respect to Kronos and Kairos, the crosshairs of timing. The second is the fear of death, not to be motivated by the fear of death, so you can enjoy each new season and you can expect each new season to present its bounty to you. And the third is understanding who the person is from God's standpoint. What is their destiny? These three things together, there's some other things, but these are the major factors. When you look upon a person concerning who they are in the Lord, when you see what stage they're in of their lives, and when you understand the moments of God's counsel and timing, the timing and and, and, and the moment of God, when you understand that, then your counsel to people will be invaluable. In these ways, you will be considered wise. You will be considered wise. This is to give wise counsel. Blessed is the the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. For even though the ungodly may know the time, the season. The ungodly does not know the moment of God. The ungodly is always governed by the fear of death. And the ungodly has no confidence that you have been given a destiny. These are the basic elements of counsel. Right? Let me move to counsel and power. Power. And then later on we'll do um, understanding and the fear of the Lord. Power is, again, another area in which I've taught quite a bit. 
when we begin the discussion of power, we start with the reality that Jesus has been given all power in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28:18. Jesus said, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go ye therefore. Now, sometimes you will also find that with the word power is the word authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The word says that, in the book of Acts, it says that God made Jesus both Lord and Christ. You remember that from Acts 2. Both Lord and Christ. This is the indication of power and authority. Now, why would it say that God made Jesus both Lord and Christ? The Lordship Lordship is the title. Christ is the anointing that enables the title. Power and authority are like that. You must not just have the position that's to have the authority. But you must also have the ability, the way to do it, the way to make it happen. Now, since Jesus has all authority and all power in heaven and on earth, where do we get authority from? Where do we get power from? When you speak of the spirit of power, you're speaking about the administration of the completeness of power and authority that had been given to Jesus. God didn't give Satan power and authority. And when Jesus said, I have all power and I have all authority in heaven and on earth, do you know what all means? All. If you have all power, if you have all authority, it means no one else has any. Because all means all. If you don't have all, if somebody else has some, then you don't have all. So when Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, he was speaking of a particular form of authority. His authority would be called plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y, plenary authority. Plenary. That means that he is the source and from him all authority flows. He is the source of all authority and apart from him there is no other source of authority. Now, I use the expression a form of authority. Plenary authority is like the source of a river. That's where it comes from. That's what it is. Okay? But, there is another form of authority that is not in conflict with plenary authority. That form of authority is called delegated authority. And delegated authority 
is not in conflict with plenary authority. Okay? And we're familiar with this all the time. I mean, in, in many, many ways in our lives, we are familiar with the distinction between plenary authority and delegated authority. For you to have delegated authority, somebody must have plenary authority. There is no delegated authority apart from the fact that there is plenary authority. I'll explain it in this way. In our country, we recognize sovereignty as being in the people. So we form the constitution of power based in the gathering up of that authority to form a government. And then the government, which has the right to operate in power, because we who had authority gave it that power, then the, the government is in fact our delegated power. The people who have authority can give that authority to a delegate. And then there are further delegations of that authority through the various organs and instruments of government. Jesus, when he claims all authority in heaven and on earth, by that preempts the claim of anyone else to have any kind of authority, including you and me. Okay? Now, we then become his delegates. Well, how does the authority of Jesus get from where Jesus is to where we are? Jesus said, I'm going away, but I will send you the Holy Spirit, who is my delegate. So there is no other form of delegated authority that can go around the Holy Spirit. Whoever has authority, has authority because the Holy Spirit has confirmed their authority. By the way, this is true even in human governments when these governments do not acknowledge God. The book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 17, tells us that God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to whomever he wills and he sets over them the basis of men. So, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit brings order in the world is he appoints people to operate. Now, he does not necessarily appoint godly people. He may appoint the ungodly for the judgment of a nation. He might appoint the ungodly so that the thing that is hidden in a nation might be so, in, so patently obvious. I believe, in fact, some of you may remember that I, I, I told you the story that the night that President Clinton was re-elected, I was walking back to my bedroom from watching TV in the living room, walked past my office, and I sat down to read for just a little bit, and the Lord turned my attention to Daniel 4.17. 
That's why I remember this verse. And that verse says, For the decree is given by the watchers, and the holy ones declare that the living may know that God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and he gives them to whomever he wills, and he sets over them the basis of men. And that was the word the Lord gave me concerning the re-election of President Clinton, that he had set over us the basis of men. A week or two after God gave me that word, I spoke it on television. So long before the Monica Lewinsky thing came up, I spoke about how God had set over us the basis of men. Basis doesn't mean most humble. It means the most debauched. And it proved out during his tenure that he was the basis of men. But God showed us that the reason he did it was because of how coarse and contemptible so much of our society had become. That he had given us the mirror of who we had become as a society in the form of our president in the hope that perhaps we would see the grotesque nature not only of his sin but how his sin reflected the condition of the nation and that the nation might repent. It's entirely possible that God's given us a reprieve in this present president's tenure but I think that remains to be seen. I think that remains to be seen. Alright. Authority and power then are all in Christ. He has, he has all of it, which means no one else has any of it. The difference between authority and power is this. Authority is the right to do the thing. Power is the ability to do the thing. Sort of like the gun and the badge analogy. If you have, if, if you one simple test as to whether or not you have the power to do the thing is, can you do it? If you can do it, you have the power. The pistol at the side of the, of the, of the law enforcement officer is the symbol of the power to do what lies within the purview of law enforcement. The badge is the authority. So the gun and the badge are the symbols of power and authority. And I won't get into whether or not everything that the one with the pistol does is in fact lawful. I won't get into that. Let's assume that, that uh, it's a perfect world and every time the officer discharges his gun, it's, he has a lawful right to do so. Okay? But we know that that's not true, but I don't want to get into a further discussion of the distinction between power and authority. I've simply laid it out that there is a distinction between power and authority, between being Lord and being Christ. Jesus has all power and has all authority, and he has delegated that to us. But his delegate, the one by whom he has delegated both his power and his authority to us, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's right to distribute the power and the authority of Jesus Christ is not limited to the saints. He sets up governments. That's why I went off into that other little piece about the president. He sets up governments. 
And sometimes the reason he does it is for the judgment of a nation. Okay. Now let's come back in and focus it narrowly upon ourselves as believers. How then does the Holy Spirit delegate the power and the authority of Jesus Christ to us? He does so in the form of what are called the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit. These are the things the Spirit gives. Spiritual gifts, therefore, are best described in terms of our being given by the Holy Spirit some aspect of the power and the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ that enables us to function in the pursuit of our destiny. We do not just have a calling, which is our destiny, but we have gifts that enable our calling. So that's why the scriptures say, for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. That means that you have a destiny known before the foundations of the world to be lived out in time and space. If you're going to live out that destiny, you need to be empowered. The empowerment to live out your destiny are gifts of the Spirit. Gifts of the Spirit are the ways that the Holy Spirit specifically takes the authority and power of Christ and delegates it to you to enable you to pursue your calling. Right? So no one is without power. You truly have been given the gift of power. It is impossible for us to conclude that we who are the people of God do not have power. We do. The problem is, we want to use the power that we have to do what we want to do. That's the problem. And so God disciplines our character so that we do with the power that we have what we were meant to do and not what we want to do. God's goodness to us is that he causes us not to be able to succeed when we want to do something that's different from what he wants to do. That's a grace to us. The worst thing God could do for you is to let you operate in power to do what you want to do. That's the worst thing God could do for you. To operate in power just to show off. God is not obligated to authenticate you. He is, however, obligated to authenticate himself working through you. So with power, and the more power you have, the greater the restraint you will find yourself under. The more power you have, the greater the restraint you will find yourself under. Because, you see, there are two aspects that go with being a delegate. Here are the two aspects. And these are the governors. These are the restraints upon you. 
Number one, power exists to accomplish the purposes of the one who truly owns the power and not the objectives of the delegate. Okay? Can I, can I repeat that? Power exists to accomplish the objectives of the one who truly has power and not the objectives of the delegate. Okay? That means, I'll give you an example. Let us say that I work for you. I'm, I'm in your employ. And we need to buy four or five pickup trucks for our, our business. And I scout it all out and come up with a figure and we agree on what brand we should buy and how much the total amount should be and even where I should go and get them. So you write me the check. You probably wouldn't do it this way, but this is just for the sake of illustration. You write me the check to go down and buy it, make this purchase. But I went down and looked at the dealer's lot. And I thought that an RV would really just be a whole lot better than these four pickup trucks. And he had just the right RV on the lot, to the penny. You know, for the same amount for the four pickups. And I decide, you know, I've got this check, it's made out to this dealer. I, I mean, it's in my hand, it's signed. I'm gonna get this deal. I'm gonna get the, the RV. This is what I want. Am I free to do that? No, I'm called an embezzler. I'm a criminal. <laughs> I'm, only, I'm not only not free, I have violated the criminal law. I'm an embezzler. Okay? Now you can understand that. Well, that's what I just said. You have power not to do what you want to do, but to do the bidding of the one who has sent you. You are to be restrained in the use of power to fulfilling the purposes of the one who sent you and not your own. That's what happened to Moses in the wilderness. That's what happened to Moses in the wilderness. He struck the rock when he was told to speak to the rock. And what happened was the attention was turned from God because the people knew God told Moses to speak to the rock, not to strike it. But because of God's goodness, see, if the water didn't come, what would happen to the people? They would die of thirst. When he struck the rock, God still let the water come. Because God's purpose in having him speak to the rock was that water should come for the people. When in his anger he struck the rock, God still let the water come. Yes. 
God still let the water come and he struck it twice. But it diverted attention from God. And the people began to see Moses as a God. Oh, this is the seriousness of the use of power. Power exists not for our benefit, not to make us look like gods in the eyes of the people. For if we allow ourselves to appear to look like gods in the eyes of the people, God is going to have to take us down. Otherwise, we'll lead the people into idolatry. That's why you'll find for a season, there are men that God will use to do, men and women, to do great things. But when the people, when the, when the, the ones he uses to do great things, when they misuse the power, it's not that when they see these others as being, when the people see the, the ones as being powerful, it's not that at all. If you're using the power of God in a manner consistent with how God has instructed you, then you are fine. But if you use that power in a manner inconsistent with how God has instructed you, you will always become a stumbling block to the people. People may stumble themselves if you are not the cause. But if you misuse that power, you will always become the stumbling block and God will have to deal with you. So the other aspect of power then is vitally important. Not only should the delegate use the power in the manner consistent with the purposes of the, of the one whose power he's using and not for his own show, but the character, the character of the one using power must also demonstrate the character of the one whose power he's using. Okay? The character must also demonstrate the character of the one whose power he's using. Because that's the nature of power. Power has to do with credibility. Power has to do with credibility. Believability. When you operate in power, you are believable. What is it that people will believe is true based upon your use of power? If your character is flawed, then people will believe that your use of power justifies that condition of a flawed character. So, God will discipline you so that both your character and the way you use power represent the one whose power you're using. Power exists for the glory of the one whose power it is, and not for the glory of the delegate. Power exists for the benefit or to accomplish the works of the one whose power it is, and not to accomplish the works of the delegate. So it's the matter of glory and, and power. Accomplishing the right thing and the glory that comes with it. It's a mistake to think that we could cure a defective character merely by saying, it's not my power, it's really Jesus' power. It's a mistake to think 
that we can cure the defect that way. No. You should never have to say, it is not my power. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. Or is the power of the Lord Jesus. You who are using the power of Jesus should never have to say that. It should be so obvious. One of the ways that it is obvious is that you bear the burdens. If you're greater, you will bear the burdens of those who are younger, less mature. If you're greater in power, you will use that power to promote the others, to lift them up, to help them find their places, because that's how Jesus is. And you'll use that power to accomplish the order and to establish the functions of that which is greater than you and can survive you. One of the ways that you know when power is misused is this. When the leader of the thing dies, will it last? Simple test. And unfortunately, you put that to the test. You, you line that up on almost any of the big and great and well-known ministries. And when the leader dies, sometimes it doesn't even wait for the leader to die. He just gets old. The thing is already dead under him. Some ministries have enough momentum that it'll run to the time of the successor. But it'll run into the ground in the time of the successor. If the thing lasts and fulfills the destiny of God, it's because it was built upon the proper use of power. And the glory of God is the objective of the thing. So the Holy Spirit is the delegate who distributes gifts of Jesus' authority to us, consistent with what we are called to be, and we function in our callings, in, enabled, empowered by our giftings. Let everyone know you have a calling, and let everyone know you are meant to operate in power. It has always been that. For you have received the spirit of power. In the remaining time uh, that we have left, that, that is the next session, we'll deal with understanding and the fear of the Lord.